Bienvenue à Leadership Mindset, le podcast où nous découvrons les trésors cachés du leadership en vente et en affaires. Dans chaque épisode, notre objectif est de vous rapprocher des leaders d'affaires les plus accomplis du monde. Nous explorons leurs expériences, motivations, inspirations et les défis qu'ils ont conquis sur leur chemin vers le sommet. Prenez un café et profitez de la conversation avec l'invité d'aujourd'hui, Neve Murray Lalanne. Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Neve Murray Lalanne. Thanks a million, Paul. Happy to be here. Neve, you are you're based in France, but you're not from France originally. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and Absolutely. A bit about your background. Absolutely. So I'm from, as you can hear from my accent, I'm obviously Irish, from County Meath in Ireland, so rural Ireland. But having said that, I was brought up there, but very quickly at the age of 12, sent to the big smoke to Dublin for secondary school and my studies in Trinity. So a little bit of both rural and I guess a little bit of city life as well. Okay. Where in Meath were you? Drumreys, just outside Dunshockland. So a very small ah, okay. rural not area. Not too far from where I am at the moment. Oh, really? I'm, yeah, I'm in Ratoad, literally five kilometers from oh Dunshockland. Oh my God, so. okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Very small clever. world, small world. So I'm, I really want to get to what, how you ended up in France, but maybe go back a little bit further. You said you went to Trinity. Talk to us a little bit about that and help me connect the dots between Trinity and what you're doing right now. Sure, absolutely. So I think it even started before Trinity. So again, being sent to secondary school in Dublin, a language school on the north side of Dublin in Glasnevin, school Katrina, so did my studies in Irish. And I just loved French in school. And when I was applying for my leaving search, uh, CAO system, etc., to get into university, the first choice was going to be French with something. And my parents said, you need to find something else to go with it. And we basically looked around and it was business and French in Trinity. I'd done a few student exchanges in France at the time, absolutely loved French all the way through my mm. studies and ended up in Trinity. And my third year was an Erasmus year abroad in a business school in France. Again, loved that experience, completely immersed in the language understanding that kind of the HR route through French was something that I was interested in. Met my husband, who was in my class, who obviously was the beginning, but very early days. And that's where it all started, to be honest. Had to go back to finish my degree in Trinity. My parents dragged me back home. And my boyfriend at the time, who became my husband, joined me for a couple of years. And he's from Bordeaux. So he said, it rains too much in Dublin, Neve. We're going back to Bordeaux. You coming or not? <laughs> and that was the end of that. And I've been here ever since, Paul. I've been here for 16 years. A long time in the southwest of France, a beautiful region of the country. So it was the rain that did it, not the wine in Bordeaux, just the weather. <laughs> the wine has something to do with it as well, for sure. I live in Pessac, which is a wine wine region and across the road yeah. from some beautiful chateau. So it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Sounds idyllic. Tell me, how did you end up then in enablement? Because that's a bit of a jump. The languages, I guess, I understand that's the connection with France. Yeah. But then enablement, where did that come from? I guess if I back up a little bit, when I had finished my studies, I did start my career in recruitment. So in sales somewhat, because we were selling human competencies and matching them with organizations. 
And I, I really like that aspect of kind of HR and sales together. And when I moved to France, it was very difficult for me to find a job originally, because even though I thought my French was good, it wasn't good enough to be considered for roles that were completely French spoken. So I got into a company where I was in their corporate university and actually teaching English for the first while, just trying to survive. And as time went on, went up to the, through the ranks and that obviously started speaking French more fluently, was able to, to apply for jobs that I wouldn't have been able to apply for and ended up in their sales academy. So head of sales training for basically, I think there were 30 countries at the time, big sales organization, organizing sales training pretty much everywhere around the world. And at one point in time, the CMO of that company, which was called Lectra changed. The new CMO came on board. She was French, but she'd been living in the US for a long time. And when she met me the first time, she said, Neve, what you do is not sales training, it's enablement. And to be quite honest with you, Paul, I didn't have a clue what she meant. I didn't have a clue. I said, what do you mean by that? It doesn't even translate into French. This doesn't make sense to me. But as she went through and explained what she'd done in the US when it came to content, tools, training, yes, but not only, and then linking it to like the business objectives, to those KPIs. And it wasn't just, I'll train somebody this week, turn the page and move on to something else. It was really following the, those populations of salespeople in the long term. And so I really bought into that and we set up a sales enablement function that I led. And that was going back to 2016. And to be honest with you, nobody else in France had a title of sales enablement at that point in time. I think I was the first mm. because, again, it doesn't translate into French. People were doing it. Of course they were doing it. There was enablement a little bit everywhere in, in France, but nobody had that title. And it was pretty, pretty recent in the US as well. So responsibilities for tooling, for scripting, for product trade. They obviously have to exist, you said, but they're, where, who did them? That's Who did them in that? In, in a, in a, yeah, in, in, in any organization in France, if I understand the rationale for bringing them under, a, under the banner of enablement, it makes sense. Yeah. Because they're all connected together. Sure. But yeah. So what I'm curious about is before enablement or those organizations that don't have an enablement function, for example. Yeah. What does it, how is it different? That's the first question. So I think, so I was, when I started in that corporate university, I was very much in the HR function. So it was more like do a needs analysis at the beginning of the year, ask the sales leaders what they're interested in, soft skills training, consultative selling, all of this. And we would do that plan and then we'd ask external consultants or sometimes internally we'd make our own and we'd roll out that training session but it was never linked to time to first deal velocity. It was never linked to anything that was a business KPI. It was have people attended, check that box and move on. And I think that's where the difference is. It's like training versus enablement. Enablement will try to get some leading and lagging indicators that help the C-suite in particular make decisions. And that's where it's linked very much to revenue operations as well, where I will roll out programs and revenue operations will help me measure the impact of those programs. And it's not an exact science, but certainly when I look at onboarding now, I'm not just looking at, oh, it's welcome to the company and we'll give you, what does the product, what's the product, what are our markets, all of that. It's, do you actually, are you able to pitch? 
Are you able to, in a role play situation, handle objections? Are you able to negotiate on our terms with our pricing and how that works? And then we certify on that. So I think there is, that's the difference to me between traditional training and what was happening in France until quite recently. And honestly, it has snowballed over the last 24 months in particular, but now enablement. I think that's that business link, that business partner, and often sitting within the sales team. So I said it was in HR, I moved to sales, and now I'm reporting into the senior vice president of sales acceleration, who works very closely with our CRO, who actually is our co-founder. So again, I think that's the difference there. Yeah, that's a new term on me, sales acceleration. There's chief sales officer, chief revenue officer, sales acceleration. It's easy to get confused with some of the titles. Could you help me just maybe parse those, the differences? Sure. Can they coexist or are they just culturally different terms for the same thing? Sure. So probably, to be quite honest with you, they're probably different terms for the same thing. The Senior Vice President of Sales Acceleration at Miracle is in charge of business development, revenue operations and sales enablement. And then we have EVPs in the different regions who they're in charge of new booking. So basically on the account executive side. But to be honest, in another organization, she would have possibly be an EVP of sales or that kind of role. So I think it's, yeah, it's terminology. So it's probably then where I've heard sales enablement called sales readiness. It's that's from my understanding, the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious because over the years I've come across many different forms of sales enablement in terms of who's in charge and their backgrounds. Yes. I've seen people with no experience in sales at all. People who come from HR, traditional background. I've seen people who came directly from sales into it and then back to sales again. So it was seen as a really important route to broaden their horizons on the entire sales function and attachment to KP rather than just a little siloed apartment, perhaps in sales. Is there a particular, if you were starting with a blank sheet of paper and designing a sales enablement function, where would you take the people from as you populate that just the role itself as the key functions within enablement? Sure. I think it's a really great question and one I've tried and <laughs> tested a few times This is my third enablement gig. I've been looking at those different profiles. I think the answer is, Paul, depending obviously on the size of the organization, but I have a team at Miracle, there are six of us, half of us come from sales backgrounds and half of us don't. And I think like my personal background, as I mentioned, is HR, did a little bit of sales, but not that much, and then moved into this sales enablement role. I have people in my team who were frontline sales, who then moved into sales enablement. And what I need to do with them is coach them around how to design programs. What does certification look like? Again, it's more that training aspect. People who have come from that background obviously don't need that, but then they need to listen to the field. So call listening is a major thing. We can't be just theoretical academic people behind our PCs saying, you should do this guys. We don't know their real life situations. So I get my team to listen to an awful lot of calls, to understand the business, to understand what the prospects or the customers are saying to us, and then trying to drive programs that answer that need. And again, we're not on a one, mm. off the shelf, one size fits all, absolutely not. So I think those mixes of kind of project manager, training background, plus sales is what works best. Okay, now I have to ask you this question. It is the question du jour AI? Because I, again, just, I have an interest in that space. 
And, and so I have opinions and views on AI and its role. How do you see it affecting the enablement function, first of all, and then maybe the roles within that? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think we're only at the cusp of what it can do. I think somehow, and I've seen some people, even from previous organizations I've worked for, say, this is changing my life and enablement. I don't see it yet. I think we may get there. I think from a program creation point of view, from a certification point of view, from analyzing talk tracks, etc., maybe we can accelerate. But I still think we need the human touch. I still think we need to understand what's written in between the lines, if you like. And mm -hmm. I'm I don't know I don't know how quickly it will impact enablement, to be honest, from that perspective. I'm a little bit genius today. Okay. And again, it will obviously depend on every enablement implementation is different, depends sure. on the company and the culture and so on sure. and the skills of the people. I did a role play recently with ChatGPT. I set it up as a prospect, just okay. set the parameters for it uh -huh. and said, I'm the salesperson. I want you to create a realistic scene. Here's the scenario. And then I want you to evaluate my performance. And my jaw hit the table. I really? I was pushed wow. to my, oh, it was incredible. So much so, I put it up and I cut and paste the entire thing. I didn't change as much as a full stop or a comma. And I put it on LinkedIn. I was that blown away by how realistic it was. Now, my thoughts on it as well, of course, it was typing and I was typing and I thought, that's not realistic. And then mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? If I was trying to learn techniques and really think about how I was going to respond to something rather than jump in with my instinct, which is often what we're trying to fix and, and get people to try something different. And I thought, you know what, maybe that is the way to go is that you slow it down and you give, you know, it, mm. it, it will come back and throw an objection and okay, how would I answer this? And you have time to think about it. Yeah. And it was so ultra realistic. It, I just thought that was my pivotal moment in terms of wow. where I, AI is going to affect it. And it wasn't um, just, I also um, saw it. sorry to interrupt you, but it wasn't just like off the shelf, generic. No, it was very specific. Have wow. a look at it, Neve. I was, I'm no word of a lie. I, my, it really tested me. Wow. And I, for 20 years, I've been doing live role plays in front of classes. Sure. In sure, the moment. Sure. And I thought, yeah, this will be an easy one. I'll just play around with this. It won't be realistic. <laughs> Not true at all. And I just thought then the applications for that, particularly as well, if you've got a multinational teams where you can also get it to do translations. Language. And from a Hungarian thing. friend of mine, it's translations are, you'd know from a French point of view, apparently it's really good. And, and now you can get little plugins in Chrome that will, you can now speak to it and it will speak back. Right to you. Again, it's not real time, oh, sure, but, but it's going to get, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. And, and I also saw it from a course design point of view, how quickly I was able to take a concept and turn it into a curriculum. And that's why I just wondered how are enablement organizations adapting to this because it's a one, it's a wonderful co-pilot. Yeah. That's the way sure. I, and, and I, I saw the role play thing as a, is again, coexisting that you're able to train students on a particular topic, but then their exercise is to go In away between. Yes. Yeah. And play this. And I just saw it because the other thing was I set it up as a pretty generic, I gave it a role, but what I could have done was, okay, I want you to, if you're familiar with disc, I want you to play a high D personality who's having a bad day yes. or yes. Or I want you to play as somebody very detailed and process driven who needs every I dotted and every T crossed type of personality. And that's where I saw some real world application for it. And as I said, it's only getting better. That's now. it. 
Anyway, sorry, I've just delved yeah, down. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. But, I appreciate uh, no, it. No, no, it's, yeah. It's going yeah. to snowball fast for sure. And, and to be fair, one of the, we're, we're using a sales enablement platform at, at Miracle. And one of the things, like we're doing a pitch competition at the moment, for example, because we've just launched some new solutions. And so our elevator pitch has changed. And using AI within that tool, just to transcript, to translate. I mean, we've got, I don't know how many different languages. Japanese is amazing, the translation from it. So yeah, so even within the existing tool stack we have, we can see yeah. how that is just making our lives easier, to be honest. Yeah. So let's step out of work for a moment. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about yourself in terms of the kind of things that motivate you. When you were younger, if I was, let's say I went to school with you when you were 12 years of age, and what would I observed? What would I have seen, who would I've seen? Mm, about that? An interesting one at 12. I was extremely competitive, very academic and competitive. So big studier at the time, <laughs> slightly changed afterwards, but certainly big studier. Always wanted, as I said, to go abroad. So I was mad about languages, asking my parents to go on student exchanges to France, to Germany, to God knows where from a very early age. And mm. While I probably came across as extremely confident in one sense, when I had done my homework, was a little bit, you know, that 12, 13 kind of, oh, not so sure of myself, a little bit searching that adolescence period in our lives where searching for what we want to do, how we want to do it. And of course, the academic system in Ireland as well is, is pretty competitive and you want to get into a good school and then into a good university and just all of that kind of pressure around academics, yeah. which honestly is a big difference from France because here it's a much more rounded, they, they kind of look at every kind of intelligence from sports and they're even graded on sports for their the equivalent of their leaving certificate. So again, interesting. yeah, it's a different approach. Yeah. That sounds like a good thing, though, that uh, yeah, fact it's more rounded. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if you can, let me just see if you can see that there, Neve. Yeah, I can. Yeah. You can. So that's my question wheel. We're going to give it a spin. Okay. Super. And we're going to take whatever question comes from it, right? Okay. Now. Let's uh, give it a spin and see what she fires up. Okay. What three objectives capture important things about you? Oh, gosh. Perseverance. Uh, Rupture. Creativity. That's an interesting combination. Yeah. Yeah. I think do you find you, sorry, I was just going to ask, do you find you rely on those very much in your current role? Yeah, absolutely. So perseverance, because enablement is a relatively new function in France, mm. but, any, but anywhere really. And so you need to convince the C-suite anytime that changes or the new leaders coming on board, making those business cases, you really need to persevere. Structure, because again, ad hoc enablement and sometimes, honestly, between us, when I have salespeople who join enablement and they're those cowboy approach almost, like I'll do everything myself, it's fine. That doesn't work. You need to have structure. You need to have the programs built out and certified and all of that. But then you need to leave room for creativity because again, we're not at school. It's not academic. You need to come with new ideas, capture their attention because they have so many other things to be doing with their days and not necessarily sitting in front of a video or whatever it may be. And so that probably professionally that those three words describe me pretty well. Interesting. That's funny. You mentioned that on structure. That's something that I've always struggled with that is, is I, I get distracted very easily and would and struggle to focus on something and pull it apart into a kind of a logical flow. 
And I have found ChatGPT a godsend really, that yeah. recently where, I'm, where I will literally ask it to give it a thing and say, look, help me structure this. That's amazing. Or help me put it into a series of logical steps, one that flows on from another. Yes. And it's great. And my only obviously concern with that, it can make you lazy then as well, which is... Well, listen, yeah, everybody deal, has but... to play to their strengths. And if you find something that can help you with your weakness or whatever it is, then why not? Yeah. Let's make our lives yeah. easier. <laughs> I'm curious, Niamh, I was, had a guest on the podcast recently who was in the online learning business and had said he had attended some sales and L&D conference some weeks ago. And he was asking them about what were the prevailing wins, issues, challenges in enablement. I was curious to know where, what in, in as the big picture challenges. Yeah. So I think what has really come to the fore, obviously tech businesses at the moment are suffering somewhat. We've seen layoffs across, across the board. And I think in companies where enablement has not positioned itself as that business partner with those measurements and business cases around the K KPIs, it's seen as something as a function that can be laid off pretty easily, to be honest. Yeah. And that's where I've seen it really through LinkedIn, obviously, but even through my own network. So I encourage people, I mentor a lot on the French market and enablement, and I encourage them to really make those business cases, especially now. We're obviously not onboarding as much as we used to, but we still have continuous learning and value to bring there, helping the managers make the right decisions. If there are layoffs to be made, we can help them with indicators that they don't necessarily have today. And just positioning, as I said, that business partnership and not just being seen mm. as the person who will organize training. That's just not going to yeah, not gonna be valuable long term for a business. Yeah, yeah. That's a very strategic perspective on enablement that you've got to, you've got to make yourself... What's the word? You have to have a seat at the table. Not, not irreplaceable, but, but you have to have. And my understanding, that's still very much a strategic issue with a lot of enablement that it doesn't have a seat at the boardroom table. Yeah, absolutely. Still. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons, Paul, that I, I'd worked for larger organizations, like massive corporations. And now I'm in a smaller organization. There's still 700 of us. And it's not that small, but... Mm. Having that seat at the table is easier because you have easier access to the C-suite. I interviewed directly with the COO of the company. I am in very close contact with our co-CEOs and co-founders. That's something that's not easy to do if you're in a 20,000 employee organization. So there are, there, are different, there are different situations there, but certainly that business impact part, showing that the programs you're rolling out are actually making a difference and being able to be very close to the field. And as I said, that call listening piece as well, really showing that you understand the business almost as much or if not more than the salespeople themselves. Who would you say when you think about people, and this could be past or present, who have inspired you the most? It's an interesting question. I think from a personal level, somebody in my family is so probably my grandmother, which is an interesting one, not somebody famous, but somebody who is a strong female leader of a family, but also of a small business and I think her organizational skills, her way of communicating, her confidence that she had at a time in Ireland when it wasn't easy for women to be both the homemaker and the businesswoman. And it's interesting because even 
in her, in my grandparents' family as well, going further up the line, some politicians, female politicians, back in at a time in Ireland in the 20s when it was, when there were few and far between. I think those are the kind of inspirational women in my family I'm proud to be related to. And then from a sales enablement perspective, you know, that CMO I was telling you about earlier on, who really told me about what sales enablement was and was able to define it for me. She was a person who sent me to a conference in Denver for a week back in 2016, 2017, who said, Neve, go and learn from the experts, go and see what's being done in a market where they're much further ahead than we are. And just that, that eye-opening experience and her leadership and a sponsorship of that was absolutely fantastic. And a lot of female leaders, a lot of female inspirational people in my life. Sales seems to be just thinking about what you said about your CMO and the and going to the conference in the States. It seems to be that sales as a culture is just so much more advanced in the States than it is in Europe. Yeah, certainly from a sales enablement perspective, they really coined the term. Forrester started writing about it many years ago now. And yeah, they just, again, like the Americans generally do, they take the ball and they roll with it. And while I love European culture in many aspects, but I think the French, for example, will talk about things for months or years before it actually happens sometimes. It's a bit of a cliche, but but it can be true. Just taking that risk, just seeing what, what that could look like and what results it could bring for a company. I think it's more an American state of mind. So yeah, so I, I definitely was influenced so much by them and I'm still part of the sales enablement community in the US. and. Uh, read a lot through them and network a lot with them because in France, as I said, I was probably the first person in, in, in sales enablement. So haven't been able to find that over here. I'm curious, in France particularly, because I've had my experiences of training teams in France in American companies. And so the culture has always fascinated me. What would somebody coming to France, not French, obviously, need to know about the French culture in order to fit in well and do well in France? Mm, it's a really good question. And it's something that I coach my team a lot on because some of them are not French and they're dealing with the French for the first time. And some of them, in fact, most of them who are dealing with the French are not French speakers. So I'd say mm. one thing that's really appreciate, appreciated if you are coming to live in the country is obviously to try to speak the language as quickly as possible. Mm. But I think there's this, if we look at it from an enablement perspective, there will always be this pushback first. Oh no, I don't know if that training session is right for us because we're different. We have a specific way of doing things. And so they will challenge you an awful lot. And that challenge can be quite, I wouldn't say aggressive, pretty intense to begin with. And I think you need to have, you know, all your I's dotted and your T's crossed and making sure that your program is robust and structured and that you know where you're going with it. You need to have confidence in delivering that message. But then when you get their buy-in, when you get that seat at the table, when you get their trust, then honestly, there's a boulevard in front of you and you can really partner with them in the long term. And once you're in that inner circle, I think you're in it for good. It's just difficult breaking in the first few months. And sometimes their physical body language can be quite difficult to read and a little bit, I don't know. Yes, exactly that. And I've had some American colleagues and some other European nationalities reaching out to me going, Neve, how do you do this? And how do you read this? And why does that person have their head in their hands and all of this? And I think it's a fast, yes, it's something that you get through. I think you just need to yeah. get into that circle of trust by again, proving yourself. And what I would say is yeah. with French is do not scratch the surface go into the detail, 
show that you understand a topic in depth. We mm. cannot be too generic with them because mm. they will, they're extremely intellectual and they like digging mm. deep into topics. And so do that for them and you'll gain their trust. Yeah. I remember a, an instance I was going to France to do this, to Paris to do this class. And the, the local enablement guy in this company said, Paul has to be in French. So here's what we're going to do. We want you to come in, but you're going to be in the background. I'm, he was going to be there and do all of the delivery right. in, in French. And he said it had to be. So I got there and we started the class and he does the introduction. He introduces me and I say a few words and then I hand back to him and there was this kerfuffle. And what it was, they said, no, we want this in English. But you said, and actually what it transpired was they wanted the option. Yes. They, because they wanted change. to practice their English. They wanted that, but they didn't want it forced upon them. Yeah. They wanted to be able to say, we were French, we wanted it in French. By the way, if you can do it in English, let's do that. It was, it was funny to watch it and I hadn't experienced it anywhere else. And then in, in the classroom, the other thing that was, to me, I felt, and it was quite a visceral thing, again, I hadn't experienced before, it was almost like there was this subconscious pecking order mm. to and fro that was going on. And uh, it's to prove yourself, as you mentioned earlier. And then it was, as soon as I pushed back, not pushed back on them, but said, okay, you guys discuss that, go off and just talk. And they were chatting away and they'd come back and talk and they just wanted to talk things out and that you're just there as a facilitator, but you're not, because to them, I, the sense I got, and it was no more than that, was that you're not up there on the pedestal as the trainer. Exactly. You're just in here. Your job is to help us facilitate these conversations and put some structure on it and breathe a referee if things are going on too long or whatever. 100%. And I, I thought that was an interesting insight too. Yeah, uh, that's, it's a good uh, one because a few years ago, I remember I was doing a training course in facilitation skills by a guy called Tiagi, who's an Indian mastermind who's written several books. And he said, for the French, you need to let the inmates run the asylum. And that's exactly it. That's it. That's you, exactly you know, it. That is a brilliant way of saying it. Let them do that's it. exactly it. And you're there to put <coughs> the pieces together at the end and to tie it all in and to give the kind of final conclusion on that. But it's let the inmates run the asylum. Yeah, there's the headline. French people are insane. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's just a Parisian joke. Anyway, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to know what about your current role gives you the greatest sense of satisfaction? The team, without a doubt. So the sales enablement team that I put together, the combination of those mm. ingredients of competencies and skill sets, coaching them, mentoring them, and wider the wider community in sales enablement, that's mm. definitely one. And of course, the other is making an impact on the business. Like when I first joined Miracle, there were less than 200 people in the company where there are now over 700. And, you know, that onboarding journey to me, being the face of the company, being that first person to welcome you in, if you're in a remote organization, which we were because it was COVID times and reassuring is part mm. of enablement, right? It's not only I'm mm. here to give you all of this content, all of these tools, all of these training sessions, but I'm here to reassure you about your sales fit, your personality fit for the organization. And I think I've got a good hold on what the DNA of the company is and what kind of person matches that DNA. So it goes back to my recruitment background years ago. Mm. It's just making that match 
and making the person feel like they're being accompanied and really supported in their journey through through their first weeks and months. And that's something that I miss at the moment because we're doing a little bit less of onboarding than we did before. But certainly that's that's something that really I really enjoy. What's your balance working from home and office? Where is that at the moment? So I'm full remote. I'm full remote in Bordeaux and I go to the office probably every second or third week for a couple of days. I've got somebody in New York, somebody in Barcelona. I've got two people in Paris. So again, I can go pretty much everywhere and anywhere depending on what's going on. But I do try to get into the office as much as possible because... But is the company back in the office then? Oh, sorry, yes, in Paris. Yes, absolutely. The company are back in the office and most people are back to normal. And yeah, depending on where the needs are for QBRs or sales kickoffs or that, I will travel around accordingly. Okay, cool. I think we will take another question. Right. From the, Go for it. This wheel. Fun. I might, I might steal we, this idea from you, Paul. <laughs> what are you... What are your, are ma- your remaining ambitions? There you go. Thanks. I can't read it online. <laughs> no, it is there you, you got it spot on. What are your... It's actually better on that screen. What are your remaining ambitions? Nice. Wow. Uh, good question. Good question. I think it's interesting because I had a conversation with my boss recently, annual review kind of situation. And I think the VP of enablement is pretty much the highest you can get in enablement. So perhaps expanding at some point in time in my career to other aspects, you could look at a kind of holistic HR training, L&D, plus enablement, plus even, to be honest with you, Paul, like all of the internal communications piece that happens within an organization that sometimes is not really managed by anybody. So from a kind of professional perspective, that would be probably one of the next steps. But to be honest, my sweet spot is French tech and it's high growth companies within the French tech market. Because I think speaking French and being obviously Irish and native English, it's that mix that 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 make things work and helping them and spa- expand into new geographies, in particular the US or Ireland and the UK. So probably at some point in time in the future, moving into another small startup slash scale up organization would be a good thing for me. So, yeah. But within the enablement function or s- separate to that? So I think within the enablement function still, but possibly yeah. expanding that, as I said, into maybe a wider remit over time. Yeah. And how is the state of the French tech industry? Because I remember being there, is it Sophie Antipolis, that area of so, yes. southern France, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that's it. Antipolis. There are some there. There are many and still in Paris, to be honest. It's quite centralized in Paris. We've got actually in Bordeaux, there's a quite strong R&D hub. So all of the tech labs teams, Nantes as well. Mm. I think like all tech at the moment, it's complicated. It's not easy, Mm. but I do think the French are very resilient and they will not take risks easily. So they will batten down the hatches and make sure that there are strong financials there to get through it. So, yeah, speaking with Brendan, our EVP of sales, it's across the board in Europe, right? It's not only French tech. I think it's, it's a complicated situation, but miracle. I'm not worried. It's we're still growing massively. We're expanding. We're building on new solutions. And so there's a lot of positivity there. And it's my role in enablement to make sure that positivity stays within the teams. I'm organizing a QBR in, in Paris in three weeks time just to to basically get the team together, get that team building back. Like you were saying, are we back in the office? Yeah, we're back in the office, but in different hubs across Europe. So I think it's really important Mm. to get people together, to get those deal stories going, to get that tribal knowledge back and get people pumped for the second half of the year. How important are those 
events for sales teams like QBRs, like sales kickoffs seem to be a big thing. Massively important. Um, Massively important. I think in 2020, 2020, early 2021, when we didn't have them, there was a massive difference. Miracle as a company was doing extremely well because e-commerce was growing a lot. But the whole camaraderie thing, the whole like that tribal knowledge piece, that peer-to-peer enablement that takes place around the coffee machine, that wasn't happening. And bringing people together, we had an SKO at the beginning of the year, beginning of February. And what I wanted was that let the inmates run the asylum piece. I wanted workshops. I wanted them. I wanted their pivotal moments and deals. I wanted to hear their objections. I wanted them to share their war stories. It was all about that and not death by PowerPoint. And that's what a sales kickoff or a QBR is about. Yes, we want to look at the metrics and the numbers. Okay, done. Check that box. Let's move on to the real stories. Let's move on to what we can do better, how we can improve it as a team selling. And all of that through a bit of fun as well. That's really important. Salespeople as well, just a bit of a party at the end of the day. And that's part of the, that's part of the experience. Yeah, I was speaking at a sales kickoff in Vegas of all places a few years ago. And they had this, because it was the party thing that reminded me of this. They had a, uh, you had to scan in every morning because they were afraid that you wouldn't turn up before. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was all these wrecked heads coming in, scanning in as they're gone. It was funny to watch it. It's like we're back at school again. Yeah. In terms of skills, looking maybe six months to three years down the line, what are you looking at in terms of skill development that's maybe not on the radar or not is, it's not there right now, but it's on your radar. It's up and coming. Skills development for the sales team. Yeah. I think the whole resilience piece, when you're looking at enterprise sales, long sales cycles that are now being even like they're even longer than they were before. I think this whole perseverance resilience piece is really important. It's very difficult to train for because again, it's not something that it's more an attitude. It's a personality trait and it's a confidence thing as well. But for me, that's something that will get us through and helping us as well to retain people by giving them that confidence. So if I'm looking at, honestly, I'm not looking much further than the next six months, but that's my big thing this year is to stay hungry, stay ahead, making sure they still have that grit. They still have that hunger for the job, hunger for the company, understanding where we're going, having a clear vision. I think it's really important at the moment to over communicate about what our business objectives are, what our vision is for the next six to 12 months. We know that there are a lot of uncertainties there, but we can give them that information. We need to communicate them. And part of that is doing these QBRs, et cetera. So I think that's really what I want to focus on. It's that perseverance and grit and helping them, making sure that it sounds like a bit like therapy, right? But making sure that they know that they have a support system around them, that they're not alone, that it is a team sale. And that even though these steel cycles are lengthening, Um, We do see the light at the end of the tunnel and we absolutely can capitalize on the good news stories we already have. Mm. That's been a very interesting and the the, the thread throughout our conversation was uh, in terms of enablement function was is around communication. That's the kind of thing I've tuned into the most is that there's the company vision and direction and objectives, but that's just out there. Now you need to communicate it consistently, differently, reinforce it through different mechanism channels. And that probably now for me stands out as the key differentiator between a training function and an enablement function. Yeah. Training function is just about skills. 
where the enablement seems to be about getting everybody lined up yeah. on the same hymn sheet, on the same going thing. in the same direction with a sense of energy and drive. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think it's a it's a great way of summing it up. And I think we can't communicate enough. People are so distracted. People yeah. are busy. People are stressed. It's the end of quarter. I think we need to be creative about how we communicate, how that lands, measuring yeah. and making sure it does, but also using yeah. that sales manager layer as our vehicles and our channels of communication. We can't, as enablers, it's enabling the enablers, right? It's making sure that those sales managers are set up for success so that they then can be a, have that domino effect on their teams. Mm. That's really important. Yeah. If you were gifted, then somebody in the company came to you and said, look, Neve, I want you to take three months off and write a book. It could be about any topic <laughs> you like, anything. What would you choose to write it about? Wow. Any topic whatsoever. Any topic, any topic. Gosh. Three months off to write a book. What would I write about? I think I'd probably, to be honest with you, Paul, I'd write about my experience around enablement and how I got into it and also how I've grown as an enablement professional with all of those hardships, but also obstacles and different challenges along the way. And there's one thing that I love about the Sales Enablement Society, it's my a little bit like my support network, is that we all have the same challenges. We all have those challenges about seats at the table with the C-suite or not understanding how we can measure success, how to sell ourselves in the business. And I think those little tips and tricks will probably be valuable for people starting out in enablement. And that's a way I can help others to maybe accelerate a little bit their careers in enablement. So what would your first chapter in that book be? Apart from introduction, what would the first <laughs> thing you'd want to tackle? The first chapter would probably be around making the business case. So setting out the charter and making the business case, making sure that it's clear for everybody what we do and why we do it. What's our mission statement? How are we measured? Who are our dependencies? Like we, enablement is at the core of so many functions. You've got HR who has an input when they're recruiting people. You've got rev operations who are trying to measure what we're doing. You've got the sales managers putting pressure on. You've maybe have customer success thrown in there. Then you have the CRO or the CEO above that. Like there's so many people who have an influence and enablement. We're coordinators in the middle of all of that. And so I think we need to be very clear about what we do. And that will avoid random acts of enablement and throwing across the fence. Neve, next week, I'd love a training on objection handling. Why? <laughs> Push it back and ask why and make sure it's clear as to what that why will lead to. So that would be probably my first chapter would be business case and charter and just making sure everybody's on the same page. Again, it's all that structure stuff I was telling you better. I can't get out of my, yeah. my DNA. Yeah. But if we keep going this way, you'll have the outline of the book by the time. <laughs> probably. We have a start now. It's actually funny you should say that because I remember... A head of enablement coming to me uh, it's a few years ago in this organization I was doing a lot of work in. And he said, Paul, he says, we have to go and develop a negotiation program, but we don't need one. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, the organization, organization thinks they have a negotiation problem, yes. but they actually have a not good enough qualification problem. And he says, we're going out for tender. And I remember writing the entire response to that around qualification even though we called it negotiation it was and it was quite interesting because I remember some of the role plays that we did they were 
designed to uncover that. And we'd have two teams, one who had done really good qualification, had all that detail, and the other one didn't. And the outcomes were just night and day. Amazing. But it was interesting, that insight, that ability to translate what the business is asking for from what they actually need. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because if you left all the heads of the departments to go off and do it, either nothing would happen or they'd actually get the wrong thing in. Get the wrong thing um, in, it's true. And that's that's why I encourage my team to listen a lot to the calls, etc. Because we can help diagnose the problem because it's not just, oh, I think finger in the air, I think this is the problem. But we can back it up by real concrete examples. And perhaps like you're saying, the negotiation thing, it's not about the negotiation skills. It may be about the pricing and packaging. We need to feed it back to product marketing. We need to feed it back to, to finance. It could be completely, the problem could be elsewhere. And that's part of our job as well, is to help diagnose that and to be more efficient because there's nothing worse than functions in a company creating content or creating training that's absolutely useless. And stats tell us that 30% of content is not used by salespeople have to ask ourselves why we have to ask ourselves why and i would think that's probably on the low side probably Mm. yeah yeah tell me if you found a few spare bitcoin down the back of the couch (laughs) that you bought in 2009 and they're now worth millions yes and you don't have to work anymore yes what would you what would how would you spend your time I would definitely travel a lot more with my kids and probably go around the world on a boat or something like that, something crazy or mad. And Okay, okay that's the holiday taken care yeah. of. Then what? And then, I don't know, maybe a business idea that I haven't come up with yet, but I would mm. quite like to do my own thing someday. And again, I have absolutely no idea at this point in time what that could look like. But experiencing being my own boss and having that ability to do so because money wouldn't be an issue is probably something I'd like to explore as well. Okay. So there is that, there's a little itch in there. Yeah, it's a little itch. Scratch at some stage. But you know what? I'm cautious as well. And that's why I didn't say it earlier. Let's keep an enablement, keeping the employee and all of that. But yeah, if I earned millions, why not? Why not? Yeah. It's a nice thought, isn't it? Oh, God, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, just I'm um, conscious of time, Neve. wanted to ask you just a few other kind of close-out questions. Desert Island, if you're going to be marooned on a desert island, don't know if you're ever going to be rescued, what one thing would you take? Can't be a person, what one item? A radio. Would that work on the yeah. desert or island or not? I don't. Let's call it a satellite. Let's radio. call it a satellite. Yeah, no, I'd have to. I'd have to have some kind of yeah. auditive capacity to listen to what's going on in the world. I think that would be the biggest thing that would be, yeah, okay, food and water. But no, something that I can listen to, something that can I can get fed by intellectually. Okay, if your house were burning down and your family are safe. Any pets are safe. Your computer, of course, and lap and the phone are safe. Yeah. You have time to run back in and grab one item. What would it be? Photos. Photo albums. That's okay. something that you can never get back if you haven't digital versions. But this, some of them are so old, I don't have the digital versions. That's definitely what I would save. I, this might be a good reminder to get. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. That's another area, actually, AI has touched as well. There's they, Some of the tools there can do a fantastic job, really fantastic. And I'm a Photoshop user, have been for years, but nowadays 
what it can do is just beyond mm -hmm. beyond imagination in terms of taking an old photograph with scratches, bits that are missing and completely make it look like a new one. Amazing. It's, it's stunning, stunning what it can do. Amazing. Yeah, so maybe now is time yeah, to get Yeah, probably, those. Paul, absolutely. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so final question I have for you. When your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, mm. what would you like the title of the book to be? The title? Probably L'Irlandaise en France. The Irish woman in France. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Something like that. I like that. Yeah. All right. Very good. Neve Marie Lalanne, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks a million, Paul. Appreciate it.